just let me know. Um, all right, I just started recording. All right. Uh, well, first of all, I, I already thank you for making time for this, but also thank you all for subscribing. Uh, I think some of you know how this all started out, but I was just, for those of you that don't, I was just writing about stuff on the side in terms of what was interesting. And then one of you reached out and said, hey, I'll pay you this much a month if you just share your trades in your portfolio. And thought, yeah, why not? Uh, that, that sounds kind of interesting. And for those of you who were part of that first tranche of people, you probably remember the jacked up Google sheet that I sent to you. Um, you may still use it. And if you do, the fun fact is what you see on the website is the exact same Google sheet. I just put uh, some wallpaper on it to make it look good in, in the website. But either way, it's it's grown to a decent amount of subscribers. And since my son was born, you probably noticed I haven't done any of the free writings, which I did for Lead Gen. I think some of you found me from that. It's all been um, through referrals. I don't know how else it would have found me. So uh, thank you for that. And also, um, the best part about this is when some of you have reached out to me just telling me how much you've made over the last year or what you have learned. Um, I, I know I know that you have families, and it's great knowing the, the positive impact that's having for you and your family. Um, but with that said, for those of you who haven't met me, I've been doing this investing thing in terms of managing my own portfolio since 2008. Um, I, I know that I've consistently beat the, the standard benchmarks, but I don't know how much it was. I moved to Interactive Brokers in 2018. And if you look at that, I, I've really hit the cover off the ball in terms of how I've done on that. My, my goal has been absolute transparency. Hey, buddy. Um, and, and that's why I share with you my trades that I do in real time. I share my portfolios on a percentage basis. And my main, my main themes are that slugging percentage is better than batting average. So if you get a couple of monster winners, and I just kind of tripped and fell in this out of luck when the financial crisis happened, Under Armour got slammed, and I figured, worst case scenario, they're going to get acquired by Nike, right? That's a pretty low-risk bet. And instead, it went up 11x, and I realized, holy shit, you know, if you get a couple of companies like that, it really doesn't matter what the other ones do. So why not just focus on those things? Um, I feel like if you're to look back at my calls for the last year and a half, they've they've generally been been good. But that's what I'm always looking at: is what's the next home run? Um, and I, I hope we've learned now that it's impossible to forecast what these market beating companies are capable of. Um, so if I have to go into an Excel spreadsheet to do like discount, discounted cash flows or something like that to tell me whether or not this is a good purchase, um, I've already wasted my time. It needs to be in my head where I say, okay, this is a like Fubo. They're a two and a half billion dollar company right now. Is there a future where they become the Netflix of sports? and are worth more than $2.5 billion when they turn on sports betting. I think there is. And I think if they figure that out, they're going to be worth a shit ton more, right? So that that is my train of thought when it goes into buying a company like Fubo. I'm not doing any mental gymnastics. Um, I think uh, Buffett actually said he does something similar. Uh, another big theme from slugging percentage of betting average is that losses from not owning stuff is infinite, right? If you... Uh, it, if I did not own Under Armour, for example, that would have just changed the entire uh, stratosphere of where my money would have ended up. Um, but losses from owning stuff is finite, right? It can only go to zero. So you've probably seen that I have a bias towards owning companies when I feel like we're in a bull market, which I still think we are now, and I'll get into what I'm seeing. Um, and many may remember, I think it was last summer, where I just got 
leveled one day where a ton of companies I own got stopped out. And I was doing that. I was aggressively buying those companies because I felt like things would pop any minute. I just didn't know when. And I think if we look back at that point, I'm up over 3x since that moment. So it worked out. And I'm not sure what the future tells, but I'd be remiss to not do what I'm doing if I didn't see the same things I'm seeing from last year. And then the other one is just not fighting the market. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I'd rather be rich than right. So if um, the market is telling me one thing, I'm not going to stubbornly hold on to something and say, well, I know that this is wrong. And I'll get into how I used to have that mindset. And uh, fast forward three years, it worked out. But uh, the amount, the money we're using is finite. So if I can find things that seem like they have a better opportunity now, uh, that's where the money's going to go. And I think if you look at my returns from last year compared to the year before that and the year before that, um, I think I've gotten a lot better at that. So any questions on the main thesis before I just talk about how I look for companies and then get into 2020? All right. Well, if you do, just uh, just unmute. But in terms of how I'm looking for these companies, it's top down. So uh, I think there's a lot of technical analysts that are staring at charts all day. They don't know what these companies do. And I, I think you can do that and make a, a reasonable living. I think it'll be very hard finding the next home run if that's where you're starting. So I normally do the opposite. I'm asking myself, what are the big technology shifts that are happening? Um, which of those seem to be on the cusp of breaking out? So a good example of one that doesn't seem like it's on the cusp of breaking out is VR, right? It's It's been on the cusp of breaking out for, I want to say, the last five years uh, since Oculus was bought, but it still doesn't have mass adoption. Um, so once I have an educated guess on what I think is coming up next, I look through... Uh, which companies are best in class and focus on those. And once I've, and I'm asking myself, um, uh, do they have the potential to become a legal monopoly, right? Like Amazon and e-commerce or Apple with their iOS system, something like that. And then if the answer is yes, it's added to my watch list and I'm just waiting for the right opportunity to find a low risk, high reward uh, entry point. And that's where the, you know, the technical analysis stuff comes in. Um, final item for the intro. Uh, if I were you, I would care about how much skin I have in a game on this, right? Um, if you were to look at my family's net worth, the only part that isn't a part of this... <laughs> Roman, what's up, man? I, uh, I invited you by accident, but feel free to sit in if you want. Um, this is a, I'm just talking to some subscribers about what's going on in investing. Um, it's good to see you on here. Um, but, um, in terms of skin in the game, um, I have, if you were to imagine all of my startup equity vested, it's about halfway, but let's imagine it's two years from now and it's all been vested. Um, that's 9% of my net worth of my families. The rest is all in all the companies you see. Um, even my retirement accounts, my IRAs, Roths, all in these companies, the only difference between my brokerage, which is what I share with you, and that's probably, I'd say, 70% of our net worth, 80%, it's, it's a big number, um, is that I'm not as aggressive in selling companies in my Roth or IRA. So companies I've, that I liked last year that I had strong conviction in, like Roku, those stopped out in my brokerage. They had to because of how aggressive I am. Uh, I, I've made a, a good return on holding those in my uh, retirement account, just like any of you who held on to those as well. Um, so that's really all I had in, for an intro in terms of skin in the game, uh, 
how I look for companies and my main thesis. Uh, any questions on that before I get into 2020? That's a good question. And I, I wish I knew the right answer. Um, I think that I think it really depends on, first of all, where we are in the market, right? And I think we're in the early state early innings of a bull market. And I'll talk about why. Um, Where the general market isn't from a short term trend. I think overall, it's positive, but today was really bad. But if, if those things are true and you know that you have the mental wherewithal to not panic and sell when shit goes down for a little bit, um, then I, I think it makes sense to be more aggressive. And I fall under that camp. Um, there was a time in January of this year. Uh, I don't know why I said it was so what two months ago. Feels like feels like eternity. But greed was really high. If you looked at any sentiment indicator and there are a lot of other things that said there was a window opening up where there could be a correction. And so I aggressively sold out of a lot of positions and uh, shorted some others as a hedge. I made a decent, I made like a few grand off of the shorts, you know, nothing crazy, but um, it turned out to be more of a correction in time than in price. And once I saw that window was closed, it seemed like things were trending in the right direction again. I went aggressively long. Um, uh, So I think that's something that's worth looking at as well. If I thought that there was a bear market that most of my bear market on the horizon, I would pretty much sell across the board, um, especially if I had held them on for at least a year, because in the United States, if you do that, you don't pay income taxes instead of capital gains. And once things started breaking down, I would go net short and, you know, probably even buy puts. If I think it's more of a correction, you'll see that I'll, I'll uh, t- reduce my leverage and then have some position short as a hedge. But um, overall, I, I want to capture those gains. So it's a long-winded way of saying it's, it's a personal preference. I think it depends on where we are in the market, how you would handle those, and your tax circumstances. But as long as I think we're in a bull market, I, I have a bias towards being long. Um, did that help, Paul? Or do you have any other follow-up questions? Yeah, I hear you. So I, uh, when I was shorting a bunch of stuff last week, um, I think I was, if you were to back out my shorts, which would effectively, that'd be a positive cash position. Um, I want to say I had about 10% cash that was sitting there. Now those are actually borrowed shares that I had sold, right? Um, because I was afraid about a correction coming. Now at this point, as you know, my shorts are all closed, right? I cashed those in and I I leveraged myself long. So that is because of uh, where I believe we are in the general market and 
how the correction was addressed. So far, that's been proven wrong. But that was how, um, knowing that that correction was coming, it was about 10% cash. And if uh, if we weren't in such the of the early innings of a bull market, it would have been higher. It would have probably been like 20 or 30. In January, it was closer to 20%. Because I thought that correction could be really bad just knowing knowing how high the greed sentiment was. Um, if it did turn, we we would have been lit up. Yeah, and maybe one way to look at it is um, in the current portfolio section, I show what the what the short positions are. So you can eyeball that and say, okay, he's 20% short. He's shorting 20% of his portfolio, right? He's probably a little more concerned than, um, you know, than if he had none of them in place. But if there's another way to convey that, feel free to message me separately. And um, I'd love to help with that. Got it. Okay. Sorry about that. I think if you, uh, if you look from a personal finance perspective, um, the wealthiest people have the highest percentage of their net worth invested in businesses, uh, either the business they own or, uh, public publicly traded companies. Um, I have a bias towards that as well. So I don't have any real estate. And then in terms of my cash position, like I was saying earlier, it's a function of where I think we are in the market. So when I think things are breaking down, um, I'd be raising a lot more cash when I thought a correction was coming up, which was about a week and a half ago, you could assume it was about 10% cash. So I had 10% sitting on the sidelines ready to buy a bunch of stuff up um, once it got on sale. And now that I did, I've actually leveraged myself long. So that means I'm, I'm borrowing cash to buy more stock. Um, I don't know if there's a if there's a magic bullet, but what I do is share uh, how much I'm shorting the market when I do it. So you can get an idea of what level of pessimism I'm in. Okay. All right. So for uh, 2020, um, for what's worth, I don't really, uh, if I, all I'm doing is beating the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, I, I don't think I'm doing that much, right? Uh, I think there's a lot of excellent investors who are doing better than that. So generally, I look at what I do and compare that to like Kathy Wood, right? Or some of the other people who are best in class. Um but if you were to look at that barometer, um, last year, the S&P 500 returned about 18%, the NASDAQ about 44 uh, My 2020 gains were 189%. So if you were to compare that to just about anybody else, I think there's one guy named Peru uh, who's based in Hong Kong or Singapore who beat, who, uh, who's pretty well known and, and um, beat me. But uh, from most barometers, it, it did quite well. If you were to break that out, because uh, you, you see that I do a lot of active selling because of 
my exposure, um, only 12% of those gains were realized, which means only 12% of those are taxed. And that's the goal is to never sell these companies. Um, if you do that, you never owe the government anything. And that's why people like Bezos are the richest people in the world. So uh, ideally, that number is as small as possible. And as some of you knew at the end of December, I was selling positions that were losing money. And also I felt had negative sentiment. So I could bring that realized dollar amount down. And that obviously affected my returns. Um, if you were to look at what the website revenue was, um, it was only 0.2%. And I say that because I feel like, uh, I, I don't know about you, but I get spammed on Twitter all the time with all these gurus that are killing the market apparently and are selling all this FOMO. It feels like they're, uh, their focus is on selling subscriptions, not on um, actually making their subscribers money. And I'm sharing that just so you know, I'm just about 100% aligned with you where it is way more important for me to find the next great company to invest in than to add another subscriber. And hopefully you've seen that in my marketing where ever since my son was born, I've just kind of put all that by the wayside and focus on finding good companies and keeping you all up to date. Um, but in terms of what I learned during that, so I think when you zoom out to today, it looks like I did really well. But in all honesty, I really fucked up during the COVID crash. Um, uh, I actually remember when we saw this guy for the first time, and um, you probably had this same memories when we hit the bottom, but seeing your net worth get cut in half in just a couple of days is pretty crazy stuff. And I remember looking at it and just saying, no, you better be fucking right about where you see things going. Um, but once that happened, I was really asking myself, what did I miss and could I have caught it? And taking a big step back from that, I always thought technical analysis was bullshit. Um, remember in business school, making jokes about it and all that stuff. And a good example is 2018. If you were, if, if I had this blog in 2018 and you followed me, I would have lost, I, I lost 25% that year, uh, while the S and P 500 lost 6%. And understandably, you, you probably would have fired me. I, I probably would have too. But hopefully you didn't fire the companies that I bought. And here's four that just come to mind. One is the Trade Desk, which I bought at $48 a share. That's up 16x since then. Uh, JD is another, $35 a share. They're up over 3x. Uh, Lamb Research, $151 a share. They're up over 3x. DocuSign, that are $40 a share. They're up over 5x. Um so I, uh, I was arrogant about looking at these things and just figured if it's a good company that's best in class in a, in a, a emerging industry, they're going to do well. If it's cheap, I'm just going to buy it. And eventually I was proven right. It just took a long time. And so coming back to um, what I missed during COVID, there were a lot of indicators that were flashing warning signs before COVID was a thing. I didn't track any of those. I didn't care. And... I'm under the thesis that COVID was an accelerant to something that was going to happen anyways. And I'll get into all those when I talk about what I'm seeing in 2021, because frankly, it's the exact opposite of what was happening before COVID. But that was the big learning lesson for me. And um, if you were to look at my returns in, say, 2019, I was at 80%, uh, which is quite good. But when you look at how I did last year, I think a big portion of that was timing. Um, instead of just buying these companies when I thought they were on sale. Um, the other thing that I learned is that I miss a lot of obvious plays too. I, I may take the website name too literally, um, but Zoom was an obvious play. Peloton was an obvious play. 
I didn't buy any of those. And those aren't, returns still were what they were. So I think the big takeaway is that you don't need to chase these companies if you miss them. I think too many people do that and they end up paying the consequences later. Um, and hopefully you've seen that as well, where um, I, I'm not trying to chase the top on these companies and, and uh, being overwhelmed by FOMO. So um, any questions on 2020 before I talk about what I'm seeing now? All right. Um, so I, I mentioned that uh, I mentioned that there were a lot of things that happened before COVID that I missed, and that's the exact opposite now. So let's rewind to January, February. Here were some of the warning signs that were happening before COVID was a thing. Consumer staples, which are things you need, like you know, uh, grocery stores, craft, cigarettes, stuff like that. Uh, they were outperforming discretionary uh, items, which is things like Nike. Etsy, Home Depot, and there's funds that you can track where they have to be 100% long and they can only invest in either of those two. So you can quickly look at whether staples are outperforming discretionary and realize um, whether these investors who have to be invested are moving their money towards safe stuff or towards risky stuff. And at that time, they're moving towards safe stuff. Another uh, big alarm was that bonds are outperforming the NASDAQ. So uh, once again, it seemed like people were moving their money towards safer stuff. And once again, this is before COVID was a thing. Another big one was that fewer stocks were hitting all-time highs while the market was going higher. So if you think about um, if you think about the market going up, and a lot of people are saying the word bubble, I feel like we've been hearing this for like 12 years now. But if you see the market going up in price, but fewer companies are participating, fewer companies are making all-time highs, that's a big red flag because that means that market makers and institutions are selling companies and they're unwinding their positions and fewer and fewer companies are part of that list. So that was another big one. Some other indicators that I think once you see, once you see those, you could have piled these on and said, Oh shit. Um, overall sentiment. There was a, in January or February of last year, the economist sent some magazine article that on the cover had, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, maybe some other tech companies, they were all bulls. And it said tech's $2 trillion tech run, something like that. Um, that was essentially the top of the NASDAQ was when that article went out. Uh, and So when you see things like that, and it's easy to go on Twitter and find someone who's saying that, but if you have the Wall Street Journal, NASDAQ, or excuse me, Economist, Financial Times saying this stuff, normally not good. Um, another is a fear and greed index. You can just Google that, but it had excessive greed in January of last year. And then insider buying was trending down a lot. So other things that were happening. And if we were to look at what I'm seeing today, it's all the opposite. Stocks are blowing the doors off of bonds. Uh, there hasn't been a worse place to put your money than bonds over the last three months. Um, maybe gold and gold's also been dog shit, which is a flight to safety. Discretionary is blowing the doors off of staples. Uh, it just staples. And the funny thing is, if you were to look up, I don't know, look up a grocery store, look up craft, I, I bet they're actually doing okay. And that's just, that's good because that means there's broad participation in the market. It's just that discretionaries are just killing them. Um, and you can look up Etsy's stock price or any of those others to see what I mean. Um, here's a big one though. More stocks are hitting all-time highs, and it seems like every week more stocks are participating in this market. Um, 
a lot of people, like I said, have been throwing this bubble term around, but Europe just broke out of a 20-year bear market. Uh, Japan is out of a 40-year bear market. So they're at the same price today as they were 20, 40 years ago. Uh, we can keep going through this. Emerging markets breaking out of a 12-year bear market. Um, financials, banks uh, breaking out since the financial crisis. They're at the same point today as they were in 2007. So if we feel like we're in a... Um, if we feel like we're in a bubble and you see these all of these different companies that are back at the price that they were over a decade ago, that doesn't really make sense to me. It seems like there's still a lot of room to run. So the disconnect that I'm seeing, and I, I wrote about this a little bit in last week's summary, is that um, uh, there's a lot of theories going on right now. The, the big one is that you know, the bull market is ending and the bear market is coming. And there's a lot of people on Twitter forecasting that right now. Well, going off of everything I just talked about, the market doesn't seem to agree. I can't find anything other than rates, and I'll go to that in a second, where we could have something that could affect the market. Um, and going into rates, they are trending up. So people think, okay, that's going to just torpedo this market. Generally, when rates start going up, um, the market performs well, right? Rates are going up because people sense that the market is, is performing well. It's at the end when rates are no longer going up, when the market gets slammed. And I mentioned last year how bonds were outperforming the NASDAQ. That means rates were going down because demand for bonds were going up. That would have been a good indicator that there was a problem. The fact that rates are going up is uh, quite frankly healthy for what's going on. But another theory about those interest rates is that value stocks are now going to outperform growth. So I mentioned banks, right? They're outperforming or they're they're breaking out from like a 12-year bear market. Um, I would be surprised if that happens. Um, generally, when a bull market starts, whatever started that bull market carries it through. And once those companies break down, you have a problem. So I mentioned before, I don't think... The bull market is close to an end. I still think we're in the early innings. If that thesis is true, then I expect the companies that started this um, started this uh, uh, process would keep it going. Good examples of the past are Cisco and Qualcomm in the late 90s. In the 70s, when you had the nifty 50s, Coca-Cola, um, Xerox, Kodak, they they didn't break down six years before the bull market ended. They broke down six months before the bull market ended. I, I just don't think we're at that point. Um, but the theory about value outperforming growth around rates has to do with the value of cash flows. So if you imagine a world where um, companies are valued by the present value of their future cash flows, if interest rates go higher... That means that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. So if you look at these pre-profit companies like Fubo, they're not going to have profit ideally for the next five years. Well, as rates go up, those those profits are going to be worth less money. Um, I, that thesis makes sense. And if enough people believe that narrative, it'll have an impact on stock prices. But if you go back to 2012 and you look at the 10-year rate, it was generally above 2%. And we're currently at 1.4. So we're not close to where it generally was. And if you went back to 2012, the NASDAQ was up over 140% while the rates were above that mark. So, uh, so I, I, don't, I don't see that being the reason. 
And if you look at the debt that companies are raising, uh, Twitter just raised something, I think Monday, but they're getting this money for zero, right? They're getting this money for nothing and they're long-term bonds. So I'd be surprised if this had a meaningful effect on, on their performance. And when we look back at the past, it hadn't been there. Um, and then with rates going up, people think, well, that's, that's going up because everyone's worried about inflation. I think that's ultimately what will kill this market whenever that happens. But at the end of the day, we don't have any inflation right now. Um, CPI is at 1.4%. You'll see a lot of inflation truthers talking about how college is up a lot more and hospitals and all that. The bottom line is if inflation was up as high as they're claiming, if it was up 10%, we would have a very, very big problem. Um, Also, if inflation was that meaningful, we would probably see gold going up. And we really aren't seeing that either. So I, I know that commodities are killing it right now. Um, I think that makes sense because a lot of supply was cut off when the financial or excuse me, when the COVID crisis started. Um, I think the ultimate question is, are, is the price for lumber, copper and all that other stuff going to be permanent? Or is it a, is it a being priced that way while supply is coming up? And I'm of the opinion that within the next year or so, supply will meet demand, which will mean the inflation won't be too crippling yet. Um, so those are all the things I'm seeing in the market. Uh, before I get into 2021, any questions about that or any thoughts? Yeah, that's a good point. Supply chain's crazy stuff. Uh, I won't pretend like I know. With lumber specifically, the Wall Street Journal had an article about it. Uh, I just read the cliff notes, but they talked about how it's not actually the supply of trees, right? The, the trees are there. It's just the mills. The mills all shut down when COVID happened. Um, I think we were seeing the same with semiconductors. Every semiconductor company, AMD, NVIDIA, Marvell, they're all, they're all talking about the same thing where um, they... Their uh, their suppliers, which I'm assuming is Taiwan Semiconductor uh, for the most part, they dialed it back, just assuming there would be a larger recession than what took place. So in terms of when, there's so many moving pieces in each of those. I don't think they'll all turn around at once. But when you look at the general market, I, I don't see anything that's saying that there's going to be a hard reset coming. So it feels like everyone's going to crank up the volume uh, to have that supply meet the demand. I just, I, I don't know when that'll right size. No.
Yeah, it's really interesting with a lot of these billionaires. I think Ray's been a really good example where I think I want to say it was 2018, 2019, where he was talking about shit going down and buy a bunch of gold and stuff. And uh, hopefully none of you did that because it didn't work out too well. But it, it is interesting when you hear about what they say, but then you look at their actions and they don't always line up. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I think Ray, I think Ray is ultimately going to be proven right. Um, infl- the Fed wants inflation to pick up. Um, there's been a lot of years where we haven't had 2% inflation. So for it to go up 3 or 4%, I don't think that's the end of the world. The problem with inflation is how do you stop it once it's happening? And the government right now has a gun to their head. Because like you said, the amount of debt we have, I think it ecl- the amount of debt we've had has eclipsed our GDP, which is really bad. And you'll see a lot of people on Twitter pointing out our debt as a proportion of GDP and all that stuff. But if you back it out as a function of um, interest costs, it's actually very low because interest rates have been cut to essentially zero and now they're 1.4%, right? So right now it's not a big deal. The thing is the Fed has a gun to their head where they need to keep rates low. If they do not, the government is really, really screwed. And there's going to come this point in time in the future and God knows when it is where inflation is so high, they have to raise rates. And then the government is going to have to make cuts on their own uh, in order to support those debt payments. That will be ugly. And that I could see a 1930 style thing coming. I have a feeling we'll have a bunch of red flags before that happens. And I'm just not seeing it right now. No, and I, that's why I, I'm expecting kind of a roaring 20s thing happening where uh, I don't know about any of you, but I'm, I'm ready to rage when uh, COVID thing is over. Um, the amount of savings that people has over the last year is up, I think, at like 50%. It's a crazy number. I think it's $1.9 trillion. Um, So you think about all these people who've had no money to spend. Once this thing opens up, they're going to go crazy. Businesses are going to invest. There's a there's a logical reason why, uh, aside from all the actuals that I told you in terms of the numbers, why this market could keep going. Um, and I don't, I would be surprised if at this moment with CPI at 1.4%, knowing how many people are still unemployed, the Fed stepped in and said, we're going to crank up interest rates and just kill this party. Um, I would be surprised. But once again, i I, uh, I always let, I always, uh, hold my opinion until facts, uh, change. And then I change accordingly. I'm just not seeing those things yet. All right. Any other questions on the general market and why I, uh, once again, I, I, I look like an idiot today, but why I've been, uh, so aggressively long for the year. All right. Well, okay.
Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I think drinking excessively helps. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, in all seriousness, there's a lot of stuff that I've done to change my mindset too and have a healthier approach to this. I think I've talked to one or two of you about it separately you've asked, but um, one thing is uh, I do the Wim Hof breathing thing every day. Uh, feel free to Google it, but essentially you're making yourself lightheaded and you're forcing all these white blood cells through your body, which um, aside from, I think, giving me a clearer head, it, it also prevents hangovers. I haven't had a hangover since I started doing that eight months ago. And those of you who know me personally know I, I haven't lightened up anything. Um, another thing that Wim does is cold showers. I don't know how much that helps with mindset. It's supposed to help with other stuff. But either way, that's one thing. Um, another is is zooming out. And I think I had a post about that when I got leveled last summer, where I think it's always helpful to just look back and see how you've been doing throughout the year or throughout the two years. And then ask yourself if anything has changed from when you were initiating those positions back then. And that's what I spent all of today and frankly, the last week doing, especially I'm on paternity leave, so I have all the time in the world is looking for things that would prove my thesis wrong. Um, if I can't find any of that stuff and all of the things that I did got me to this point, I can't, I can't exit those positions until something changes and price pr proves me otherwise as, uh, as difficult as that is a stomach. Um, I think the longer you do this, the longer you realize the opportunity cost of not being in the game. And there's, nothing worse than selling something too soon, seeing a three X or something like that. And you're talking about the whole like fuck thing, but my God, uh, like I mentioned in the beginning, your losses are finite if they go to zero, but they're infinite. If they rip, um, all you need to do is miss on one or two of those. And that right sizes your thought process too. So those are my big ones exercising, I guess too, but really, um, doing the Wim Hof stuff. Um, looking for anything that could prove me wrong, uh, not in terms of what people say, but actual things in the market. And then also, um, and then, and then also zooming out. Um, any questions or thoughts on that, Dan? <laughs> for sure. For sure. Last resort. Yeah. What's up, Brandon? Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. So if you were to read some books, they'll have a hard and fast rule about cutting your losses at between eight and 10%. Um, I generally follow price. So if I see a company has been making higher lows, so that means 
over the course of a few months, every time they've had a low, it's been higher than the low before that. I think that's a pretty good signal that it's in an uptrend. Um, also, if they have higher highs. So normally in that case, I wait for it to make a lower low uh, than the previous one. Once it's done that, I say, okay, this uptrend is no longer valid. I am selling this out. Another one is looking at um, resistance or support. So if you see a stock price that's just bouncing off, Open Door is a good example. It, it had been bouncing off of 30 bucks a share uh, for quite some time. It broke through that and then was bouncing off of that as support. Um, if it were to sink through that, that's a telling sign that there's a problem in the company. And as ridiculous as it sounds, price has memory. So that would have told me, okay, um, I need to pull the plug. And I, I did on them. And it, it turned out to be a pretty good move. Hindsight, I bought back in too early. But um, but that's what I generally look at. So books say 8 to 10%. I think that makes sense. Um, I generally look for uh, logical areas of sell. And once it closes below that logical area, that's when I sell out. And the only exception is if I think the the reward is so high that it's worth holding on to those losses. An example of that is XPeng right now, where I, I would guess I'm down probably 20% or so, so uh, quite a bit. Um, I, uh, I, I believe that China has an existential threat for pollution. I believe that China has a wherewithal to force... Uh, businesses and people to buy electric vehicles. And I believe that China is not going to let an American company like Tesla win, right? So when I think about all those things, that's why I haven't let that one go yet, because I think it could just crank up any second and I would not like to miss out on it. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but if you're not looking at this that often, I'd say eight to 10% or look for a low low or somewhere where the price had been bouncing off a lot. And if it closes below that, that's a good sign that there's something else happening in the business and it makes sense to sell. Sure. All right. Any other questions at all? Otherwise, I'll get into 20. What's on my radar for this year? All right. Um, so I have uh, quite a few themes. I'll go through each of them and just name some companies that are on, on the list. This isn't in any order. Um, I, I guess the first one I'm most bullish on, but for the rest of them, just assume that they're, they're all equally uh, looked at from me. And then I'm just keeping an eye on these companies. And when I see a compelling entry point, that's when I'm buying, um, like last week. The biggest one that I have, and you, you, you can see it just in, oh man. Uh, sorry, that was my son. Um, the biggest one you, you can see in my portfolio is connected TV. Um, uh, you see that Magnite is my largest position. Uh, Trade Desk has done quite well. Uh, Fubo is now one of my largest positions. Um, I'm of the belief that cord cutting is going to keep happening. And I think each of those companies are really well positioned for what that new frontier looks like. Um, uh, the four companies specifically that come to mind, I mentioned Magnite. Um, they have the potential to be the trade desk of the sell side of connected advertising. Um, and if they pull that off, um, they're going to be worth a lot more than their, I would guess they're like 8 or $10 billion right now um, than what they're at today. And 
they got closer to that with an acquisition that I told you all about about a month ago. Um, the other one is Fubo. Um, it's so funny with these connected TV plays, and you can go down the list with uh, Netflix, Roku, etc. They all have dog shit margins at first. The street doesn't believe in it at all. And then the company figures out a way to make a ton of money. Netflix did that by acquiring their own content. Roku did that through advertising. Um, Fubo can do that by betting in-app. And we already know that this is a successful model because Sky Networks over in Europe does it. It's the most lucrative uh, gambling operation in Europe. It's the most successful uh, um, uh, virtual gambling method that's been done so far. And states have budget problems uh, in California, and we definitely have one. I I don't see why these states would not legalize gambling, knowing how much money the states that have are going to make. So. I'm, I'm very bullish on that. I really liked the numbers that they had uh, last night. Uh, Roku is another story on connected TV front. I still think they're in the early innings on that. And I've just kept an eye on for a pullback to reenter that position. And then the trade desk, uh, they've already blown the doors off of the buy side of buying um, advertisements for connected television. Um, they're down a lot today. I, I think it has to do with the Apple... Um, I'm blanking on the acronym, but tracking users for advertising. Bottom line is the companies that have the monopolies like Facebook, Trade Desk, et cetera, they're going to be in the best position to make money off of whatever that new reality is. So I'm not as bearish on them. And if you look at their results, they've, they've still been killing it. Um, and if you have any questions on any of these, just let me know. Feel free to pause uh, or just try. Yeah, what's up? Go for it. Yeah, for sure. And sorry, I'm changing my son's diaper right now. Uh, so bear with me. But uh, if you were to if you were to go to the recent inve- investment section and uh, click on the magnite ticker, you'll see when I doubled and tripled down on that company. Um, and so the short answer is I did. The problem that I have is that once positions get so big and so concentrated, interactive brokers just makes my life pretty difficult. So a uh, good example is when I was looking for companies to short, um, I was like, okay, I think a correction is coming. I didn't want to sell too many securities because of the tax hit, what can I do instead? I'll short Tesla. Well, because of my concentration in positions like Magnite, I couldn't do it. Um, so Pinterest is another example. Because of how concentrated I was, um, interactive brokers wouldn't let me buy more. So sometimes it's circumstantial. And when I see those, I'll tell you and say, hey, I can't buy this, but if I could, I would. Um, for Magnite specifically, when I sold them, they had what was called a, uh, I think it's called a bearish divergence. Essentially, the relative strength was trending down while the price was trending up. So here I am worried about a correction. I see this on the stock chart. I think I sent an image of it to to all of you in a weekly summary because I did the same for Stitch Fix. And I said, okay, if if I'm worried about a correction, I have a high concentration in this, which I know will affect me in the future. As much as I don't want to sell it, I've I felt like I had no choice if I was to protect my capital and have flexibility in the future. Um, 
But if you were to look at each of my big positions, if you were to look at the purchase times, I think you'll see that I, I was buying them up all the way. And once I get to a point where the concentration's too high, then I may be kneecapped by interactive brokers. And when I think there is a buying opportunity still, I'll let you know. Uh, as soon as I change Luke's diaper, I can, I can take a peek at the chart and let you know. Uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, just look at their valuation. If they figure this out, they're going to be worth a shit ton. And just click on Trade Desk, uh, look at their chart since 2018, and you'll see what I mean, right? They're gonna they're gonna kill it. Um, now the question is if because Amazon's actually the largest um, uh, player in that space, but I think they have a pretty obvious conflict of interest. It also doesn't make them that much money, right? If they add Magnite's market cap to their $1 trillion capitalization, is that really meaningful, you know? So I don't really see them being an existential threat, but, uh, but um, that's why they aren't worth more than they are today. It's because they do have uh, some legitimate competition in the woodwork too. Uh, here, let, me, let me look at Magnite right now. I have this uh, funny defect where I know I'm not selling anything. I uh, we don't uh, look. Okay, so just looking at face value, um, if you look at the price, how it's been opening and closing every day, it's basically making a a line a diagonal line from the top left to the bottom right. Uh, that's generally called a bull flag. So. The idea is when that breaks, uh, they're going to just rip. And if you look at Magnite stock price from mid-December to early January, the exact same thing happened. Whereas at 33 bucks, got all the way down to 22 And then once it broke that trend line on the upside, um, it got to where it is today. Uh, there was like a little mini bull flag that happened in mid-January, but it ripped. So... Um, if I were to add more to this and, and I might, um, if, if depending on how things change, I would wait for it to break that trend line. And once it did, then I would, then I would load up. I don't see any benefit buying it now. Um, cause I don't see any, I don't see any like areas of support or anything like that. Yeah. All right. Um, any other questions on Connected TV? Or otherwise, I'll get into the next one. All right. Uh, the next big one is uh, social media seizing ad, ad dollars from Facebook and Twitter. Um, I, I don't know many people who have a positive view of Facebook. They actually do things that aren't a big deal and people lose their minds. Um, like they did something that um, they, they made absolutely no changes to their policy, terms and policies and everyone freaked out. Uh, that just goes to show how Facebook's being viewed. And Paul, even for you in Australia, you've got Rupert Murdoch, who's uh, strong-arming politicians to basically have Facebook give them money um, for app, for traffic. It's pretty nuts. Um, but because of that, that's why I'm so bullish on Pinterest and Snapchat. So I think those are the two winners in that. If you were to look at Snapchat and Pinterest, frankly, they've killed it. 
I think the other thing is that they have more um, they have more flexibility for this new frontier. Like Facebook's uh, Facebook's strength is their user base. Um, have a few billion users, and you can find ways to make money. Pinterest and Snapchat are primed for what's happening next. Pinterest for e-commerce. Um, when people are on Pinterest, they feel like they're accomplishing something, right? So they spend more time on there. Um, and for Snapchat, their engagement has just been bonkers. And they're doing a hell of a job, not only growing their user base internationally, but also adding for AR, for augmented reality. And when you think about augmented reality and um, e-commerce, that's a match made in heaven. So I, I think for both of those, they're going to they're going to kill it. And uh, th- that's why I had been aggressively adding for them last year. And I'm looking at them for this year as well. The next one for gaming. Um, you've seen this with Huya. Uh, that one. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's a fine line between adoption or uh, I guess let's call it consumption, how much people are using the product and ad budgets. And their ad- advertising got killed in the first half of the year and they still did pretty well. Um, they still did all right. Now, now, if you look at them, they're up, I want to say 4X from when I wrote about them before COVID. Um, so we know that advertising is back. When you think about most people who are on Pinterest, um, Here's a fun fact about them, actually. They're the first technology company to start in middle America in like Iowa, where I'm from, Wisconsin, places like that, and branch out to the coast because it was all mothers who are using it. And that's still their dominant user base. Um, if they were using it 10 years ago, I don't see why they would stop today. And even though overall user growth is great because that means they have more pricing leverage with advertisers, um, mothers have always been the crown jewel for advertising. So I, I don't see them giving this up once COVID stops. And I, I feel like more men are using it too, just for looking up for tips or things to buy their spouse, stuff like that. Um, I don't think the goal with Pinterest is to go on it all the time. It's to have a project in mind and, and go on it. Um, so I'm not terribly worried about that. But if it did go down a little bit, I think the advertising budgets, the increase in advertising budgets would make up for it. That's a good question, though. That's, um, I, that's why I was surprised like mobile gaming got hit as much as it did recently, like Zynga and stuff. Um, I feel like when people are on the go, they're going to play more of those games. But speaking of gaming, uh, Zynga's not on there, but the three that I had, you all know about Huya. I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on them just because uh, they're, they're creating a monopoly for being the Twitch of China and Southeast Asia. Uh, Tencent's their largest shareholder. Um, I don't see why Tencent wouldn't be invested in their success. Um, and then the other one is skills. Uh, if you haven't heard about that, uh, they spacked a couple of months ago and... If you look at their stock price, you'll know I'm an idiot for not buying them then. But um, but what they do is they do they're basically FanDuel for um, any type of competitive game you can imagine, like solitaire, virtual bowling, all this other stuff. And what they're they're essentially the pick and shovel that allows users to gamble against each other when they play head to head. So when you think about all these games, they really don't make much money off of advertising, if any. Generally, what they do is they sell like 
this digital crap and there's these whales that are like 10% of users that actually buy it. But it's a pretty bad business model. They just hope that they get some rich kids or rich people where money's not an object and they take mom and dad's credit card and just go nuts. Um, Whereas with skills, it's a lot like FanDuel, where if you want to challenge a friend and put money on the line, you can. Um, Or if you want to challenge regular people, they'll match you up based off your skill level. And if you're a publisher, if you're making these games, how great would it be to monetize that and just take a cut? Right? So I think there's a lot of potential in this. And if you go across the United States, at least, I don't know as much about the world, but in the United States, the state of Washington is the only one that doesn't allow that. And that's because they don't have an income tax. So they would rather, they, they want your money spent on consumption in the state and this is out of the state. I think that's a pretty interesting play. And then the final one is Unity, the augmented reality, virtual reality company. They have 1.5 billion users. So they're the pick and shovel for a lot of the 3D virtual reality games that are made today. And those users aren't being monetized today. They're being hit up for two reasons. One is the Apple's change in advertising um, identifiers, and also because their lockup is expiring in March. So I think a lot of insiders are going to sell. But kind of like Facebook, if you you have a billion and a half, two billion users or something, you'll find ways to make money. And I talked about e-commerce with Pinterest and Snapchat. Augmented reality, I think, is going to be a big boom in e-commerce in general. I don't know how that'll pencil out yet. I think that's further down the line, but uh, I think there's some short-term opportunities when you look at their user growth or their, the, the total users they have, and there's some obvious connections to them uh, helping in anything VR or AR related in terms of you know training police officers uh, to not be as uh, hostile to, to people or... Um, or uh, I, I, I read yesterday there's an AR company where you can practice firing someone right? There's just so many potential opportunities for this and they're at the forefront of it. All right. Uh, the next one is communications. And I think you've seen, I've been very bullish on Twilio and it, it's done okay. Um, but it hasn't, it hasn't, uh, gotten where I imagined it would, um, yet. And Hey, Elena here, I'll add you on here. Um, but if you zoom out, the, the obvious winner for communications last year was Zoom, right? They hit the cover off the ball, and that was easily my biggest miss. Um, kind of like how Amazon has won e-commerce, I think there's going to be other companies that will succeed in this space. What you generally see is that there's one who hits it, but then there's all these companies like Etsy, um, you name it, Restoration Hardware, they figured out a way to do well in retail. Other businesses will find ways to make money in this. And I think we'll see the same in communications where niches will be formed. So two obvious ones that I held last year and I think was smart in selling was one, Teladoc, and two, Amwell. They're they're both pretty similar in their regards, uh, but they're telehealth companies. Uh, Because of regulatory practices, because of how bureaucratic health systems are, Zoom is not going to be able to tackle that. And both these companies are positioned for it. when you look at where they're valued today and how obvious telehealth is, I don't see why once COVID ends, knowing how expensive healthcare is, um, all of our politicians say, hey, let's go back to this expensive stuff and uh, jack up our Medicare costs and you know, um, 
increase everyone's healthcare expenses. I think everyone's looking for ways to save money. And those are two obvious plays. The other three are picks and shovels that all have something to do with what Twilio is doing. So one of them is obviously Twilio, and that's one of my largest positions. Another one is called Agora. Um, Anyone based in China may have heard of them, but they're actually the software that allows Clubhouse to work. So the way we're all talking is using um, Agora's Rails. And if you were to look at their stock price once Clubhouse blew up, uh, that's another that was another miss of mine of not buying earlier. Um, and then the third one is Bandwidth. And they have a cheaper version of Twilio, you could say, but it's also more secure. And that's why companies like uh, Microsoft Teams... Um, Zoom and, and others actually use their rails to uh, uh, to facilitate phone calls and text messages and overall communication. Um, bandwidth actually broke down in price today out of a pretty long consolidation. I bought it when I thought there was support, but that may be one I exit for now and revisit because um, it, it feels like the market believes that there's other stuff going on than what I generally saw. But if you were to look at bandwidth stock price, had consecutive higher higher lows, which was great. Um, not higher highs, but kind of in the same spot. And then all of a sudden, uh, if you look today, it just completely blew out. So um, I'll probably exit that. The The final company is that's on my radar is Zoom itself. Um, they they have more, higher earnings per share right now than Salesforce. And they're a $99 billion company. I think Salesforce is like 200, 188. Okay. So they're half the valuation, higher earnings per share. I think a lot of people just assume that Zoom will be turned off once this market changes. Um, I don't think people are going to fly and travel for business meetings as often as they used to. And being someone who sells software myself, uh, your meeting tool needs to work, right? Your customer can't be embarrassed because they don't know how to log in. You need to share your screen. You need to interact with your colleague who's in another room or another office. Um, I don't see how that would just all of a sudden change given how successful Zoom has been and how successful Zoom's customers have been. So that's one that's really on my radar too. And I was shocked when I saw that they had a higher earnings per share than uh, than Salesforce. I thought that was interesting. <clears throat> um the next one on my list is uh, digitizing hard assets. Um, Stitch Fix was one of those for apparel. I think that's all. that's been something everyone's tried to figure out. Um, I had a bullish thesis on that last year. Once I felt that things were turning around the market, that was one of the first companies I went big on, and that was quite successful. And seeing that they're valued at, I think it's $3 billion. Uh, let me make sure I have that number about right. Okay, seven, it's seven and a half. I think there's still so much more upside for them. Uh, if they do actually figure out retail or apparel, um, it's one of those things where it's going to build on itself. And aside from the convenience of just having this stuff delivered to your door, they learn your sizes. And um, I've having never used them. I've heard anecdotes from people where it's not perfect, um, but their churn rates say otherwise. Uh, the retention rate uh, constantly goes up their average customer spend goes up. So I think if anyone's going to figure out how to um, digitize apparel, that they're in the best position for it. Um, 
The other one is Open Door, which you've seen a few times uh, that I've gone in and out of. Um, <clears throat> my startup's in the mortgage technology space. There's so many players involved in this. And if you look at how much money is being spent, it's in the threes of trillions of dollars. And I think everyone's looking at, well, can they undercut... Um, <laughs> sorry. Can they undercut what realtors are charging for this? The short answer is, I don't know. Uh, but the other answer is, I don't think people care. I think if you can make this more convenient, and we've seen it with other services, um, like Vroom's a good example, or Carvana, it's actually more expensive to buy a car from them, and they won't buy a car from you for a cheaper price than a dealer. But they make it super simple. And if you look at either of those stock prices, they've, they've killed it. Um, I think if you do that, and you capture enough market share, there's so many uh, nodes of the housing purchase process that you can monetize where this would make a lot of sense. Um, if you were to look at digitizing other stuff, DoorDash for delivery, they're making a ton of money off of advertising now. And that's something that nobody considered when delivery started. But once again, they're figuring out ways to be cash flow positive. And I feel like if anyone does crack this real estate thing, Open Doors Execution says, tells me that they have the best position to do that. Um, when you look at their competitors, I, I know Redfin uh, uh, too well, I think is a good way to put it. A lot of my friends at Microsoft work there. Their executives are, Google their executive team. It's a bunch of old white guys who are super cheap. They aren't willing to take risks. Um, I don't see how you win this market by not taking risks and not by investing in growth. And they've proven that they will not. Um, the other is Zillow. I really like Rich Barton. He actually uh, was found, the founder of Zillow. He came back to be the CEO because of an article by uh, Ben Thompson calling him out for not getting into this market. Um, so that does sound like a threat. But talking to people at Zillow, they're still making so much money off of selling leads to, um, to loan officers that they're really not focused on this. And I've talked to people that are actually competing with Open Door and they're frustrated and they're thinking about leaving. So I think that's a pretty bullish sign for Open Door. Um, before, before I get to the next one, and thanks for your patience with the little guy. He's uh, got a lot of energy. Do you have any questions on communications or the digitization thesis that I have? Okay. Uh, the last one is semiconductors. And this has been a really big one of mine. I saw the price breaking down on a few of these. So I, I sold them and fast forward today and I, I probably should have sold more, but, um, software has been, if you look at the price to sales ratios of software companies, um, and name a successful one, Twilio, Zoom, et cetera, they're probably valued between 20 and 50 times sales. Um, I think snowflakes are like 50 or 60. They all have crazy growth and sky high margins. It just so happens that semiconductors have that as well. And I think the ultimate question for semis is, will that continue? And when you look at how many devices are going to be turned on for 5G, we're talking about billions of different devices. Um, whereas for 4G, that was cell phones. So we're talking about millions, right? Maybe. Um, but we're talking about cars. We're talking about video game systems, refrigerators. You name it. They will be digitized. Streetlights. I could go on and on. Um, another big item is AI. Um, we see companies investing in that. There's a lot of AI companies that I would probably say are, are overvalued. Um, but in order 
to invest in AI, you need to invest in data centers. And that's once again, bullish for these semiconductors. So the companies that are on my list are all companies that I've either bought or am holding. It's Marvell, who's a leader in 5G. They bought Infi as well uh, to uh, help uh, capture that market. AMD, which is just wiping the floor with Intel. Atomera, which makes it possible for semiconductor uh, manufacturers to um, to improve their chips without investing in new nodes, which saves hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, NVIDIA, which is the market leader in AI for uh, their graphic processing units. Qualcomm, uh, which just makes a shit ton of money off of their 5G licensing. And then you have Lamb Research, which is a pick and shovel in the in the actual wafers for semis. So for all of those, I just keep an eye on the charts and I'm looking for entry points. You, you know, I have I felt Adam Arrow was at a good place. And fast forward today, I may have been a little premature, but we'll see. And then, sorry, everyone. Uh, and then Marvell and, and AMD, I'm also holding as well as and lamb so it's really nvidia and qualcomm that i'm looking for the next opportunity to get in on that but i don't see how if everything else is true in terms of these companies all scaling up more 5g units being added to the to the ecosystem i don't see how these companies who are all market leaders would not be successful in that space all right well that was everything on my radar and that was Everything on my agenda. Um, with that being said, uh, are there any other final questions or any general other items that people would like to talk through? Ooh, good question. Um, so I normally I normally don't think about uh, dollar cost averaging, and I think it's important to know yourself. I'm very aggressive in this. Um, I'm normally looking at it in terms of a percentage of holdings. So uh, Twilio is a really good example where I'm I'm so bullish on that. As is Fubo, I said that needs to be one of my largest holdings, and I will do whatever I can to make it one of my largest holdings. Um, if I did not have that mindset. Um, what I would probably do is ask how long, uh, can I be without that money? For me, I assume it's permanent. I assume I just will never need it. Um, but if, let's say it's a year, if we're generally in a bull market, I don't see a problem with putting it in, in thirds or in fourths. Right. And if a company is doing well, it's safe to assume it's a winner. I would add to those. And if a company is doing poorly, I would look through the tea leaves and ask, okay, what's going on? What's happening that I'm missing? Um, instead of thinking about the amount, of, the percent of money you put in, I would encourage not pouring all of your money into losers. I think that's where a lot of people get the best of themselves and uh, focus on the companies that are winning instead. Um, I've mentioned before, had I doubled or tripled down on companies like Trade Desk or DocuSign, I'd be in a much different financial situation right now. Um, but I'm glad I didn't sell them meaningfully like I did every now and then. Um, 
and I let them run. And then for companies now that I'm very bullish on, I've aggressively added to them. Yeah. And once again, if I thought we we're in a bear market, it would be totally different. You know, I would be in mostly cash. I would be shorting stuff and I'd be waiting for the trend to change. Because of all the facts I walked through earlier, I don't see anything screaming that there's a bear market coming. And if there is, I'll let you all know. Um, obviously, when you have days like today, um, what I do is look for where I could be wrong. The only the big item is interest rates. But when I just take a step back, it doesn't seem bad. Um, but if things were a little more uneasy, I would say I, I would personally be more conservative as well and have a higher percent of cash on the sidelines than I do now. All right. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, so I'll talk about what I look through when I'm looking to sell. So uh, I think a really good example is the Tuesday after Labor Day. So I was worried about a correction coming and I had I had sold a lot of positions in January. So I'm looking through this and I'm asking, okay, which of these companies are the ones that where I've gained the least amount of money, right? Because I know if I sell those, I won't owe much in taxes, Right. Whereas with like Magnite or Stitch Fix, especially because I've had those for under a year, I'm going to get destroyed. Right. So I filter on where have I made the least amount or lost money. And then I look at every single security and I'm asking, where is potential support? Where is an area where that stock price is uh, could bottom out? And where's the price relative to that? Uh, where's potential resistance? And if it's close to that resistance point, Teladoc was. Um, I said, okay, I'm just cutting this, right? Wasn't, uh, it was a good, it was a 60% gain, I think, percentage wise, but it was such a small position, it, it wasn't as meaningful. And I felt like it was going to, it was hitting potential resistance. So I said, okay, that's gone. Um, for the rest of those, if I don't see any meaningful support or resistance, then I'm looking at relative strength. Um, and the short answer is the higher the relative strength, the better. That's telling you in the law of supply and demand, more investors are demanding that stock. Um, so if I were to have aggressively sold more, it would have been companies that had lower relative strength. 
And actually, um, now that I'm talking through this, that's exactly why I sold Globus Medical and Exact Sciences. Uh, I'm really bullish about what each of those companies have in terms of potential. Their relative strength was down and they were below an area of support. So I said, okay, those are gone. I looked at the rest of those, Paul, and all of them were above key areas of support. So I, I felt like I, I couldn't honor my principles or how, I, uh, tr- how I'm investing and speculating if I let those go. So I decided if they fell through that, then I would close them. And, and I did. So uh, going to your answer about shorting, that's when I said, okay, I, I need to find stuff to short because I'm worried about a correction. What are some companies? And I looked at the same stuff and Tesla's chart was dog shit. It just looked really bad from a price perspective. And I felt if the market was going to fall, this thing would just get nailed. Um, and it, it just so happened I was right. I just uh, also happened to have sell, sold a little too early. Um, I know this is a long answer because there's a, a few things you asked. Before I get into my thought process on shorting and buying put options or call options, do you have any questions on those items? Okay. Um and if you were to, on your investing uh, services, if if you don't have a way to look at relative strength, you can generally see that on like Yahoo Finance. You can type in the ticker symbol and then say add relative strength or uh, RSI. So that's a good way to look at it. But um, once I've gone through those items to sell, and um, I told you about why I personally didn't sell a lot of those, the next thing I'm looking at is shorting. And I'll say that the issue with shorting is the exact opposite of the benefits of owning a stock. It's that your losses can be infinite. So if you do short, I think it's imperative that you don't get greedy because um, anybody who shorted Tesla a year and a half ago is just, you know, they're they're down probably 10x. So if you shorted it $10,000, you owe 100 grand. Um, so it's no joke. Um I would I would have high uh, tight stops. So if it goes above a certain price, it would close out. Ideally, because th- you lost money on that, you made money on the rest of your position. So you did okay. And then for put options, I think that's more of a speculation. Um, you can be right with put options in terms of the company being overvalued, and you could still lose money because of timing, right? The market didn't adjust as quickly as you expected, or because of volatility changes. An option is worth the possible areas that price could move. And as volatility goes up, that makes uh, an option, be it a call or a put more valuable because it's possible that it'll go up more and possible it'll go down more. So I normally don't buy puts unless I believe the price is breaking down. And once I felt Tesla's price is breaking down, that's when I added, um, I added my short by buying puts. I did the same with call options last year too, where there were uh, Pinterest is a good example. I, I think I 3x that call option. Had I held on to it, it would be worth a shit ton more. But um, I felt that the company was about to rip. I felt like it was breaking out. So I aggressively bought call options and it worked out quite well. Um, the same thing happened with some semiconductors I bought last year. So if you're, if you want to learn, I don't, um, if you, See stuff. If if you think there's a correction, you could short the general market, right? You could short the S and P 500. The ticker is spy. Um, that is not going to move a crazy amount 
up or down so you can get an idea of what that is like and then what the process is like buying it back. Then you'll know how, if, if you think there's a correction in the future, how you could hedge. Um, you could probably do, do the same for an option as well, where you buy one contract and see how it moves up and down. Especially with those options, you'll see that the percentage changes are pretty wild. And I think it's, it's good to look at that uh, if you buy one contract and ask yourself how you would feel if you own 10 or 100x that position. And in the meantime, if you're not comfortable doing it, generally when I'm buying uh, those call options, I believe I'm getting very bullish on the position. So uh, maybe you could um, just buy the stock. And same with, um, with when I buy puts. I felt Tesla was going to break down and uh, sure enough, it did. Um, so shorting it, you wouldn't have made as much money, but it still would have been a, a lucrative position. Yeah. Yeah. And a little thing, if you do have stops, um, either one way or the other, uh, for positions going up or down, make sure you close those out after you close your position. Right. So I've had that happen a few times where I saw that I, I bought something that I had already sold and it's because I forgot to turn off the stop loss. Uh, that's actually generally worked out because these things follow in trends, but, um, but either way it's, uh, little mistake that I make every now and then. And, uh, and so just, uh, if you do put in those tops, make sure you kill them once you close out the position. Yeah. All right. I know we've gone for 90 minutes now. Any, and we've covered a lot. Um, any final questions from anyone? Yeah. Um, feel free to reach out to me if you have any feedback. Like I said, I, I had a feeling this would be clunky. Um, just getting you all on here without uh, any outside people just joining w took a minute. But um, off the top of your head, anything that um, anything that you think would be helpful if we did something like this in the future? Yeah, so I, I should have mentioned this when you joined, Delanas. Uh, sorry about that, but uh, we're recording this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hunt for a way to because I had some Android users who reminded me that Clubhouse isn't on there yet. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna find a way to send that to everyone. Um, if I can, great. If I can't find a way, I'll think of a way to summarize that in a writing as well. But um, the goal would be to send that, and hopefully, you can listen to it as a podcast or something like that. All right, everyone. I'm sorry. All right, go for it. Thank you all. Uh, hope we can do this again soon. If you have any other feedback, let me know. Bryce, have a great rest of the week.